This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 199. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also give you an update on my life and my writing. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 57 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Michael Pirelli was in the custody of police from his own Precinct 9. After being arrested by SID and telling the whole story of the Brotherhood on a WorldNet link, Michael was handed off to his supervisor, Sergeant Hawkins, and his partner, Detective Bentley. He tried to explain to them the danger posed by the cult, and that Kate, Morgan, and Murakir need backup immediately. But all Hawkins cared about was that Michael had once again disobeyed orders by getting involved in this case. And now he had made a scene in the media by spreading wild accusations about some vast conspiracy in the imperial government. The sergeant went on ahead to Precinct 9, leaving Michael to get roughed up and shoved in a transport van by Hawkins's cronies. Bentley did not participate in the police brutality against Michael, but he didn't do anything to try to stop it either. As they rode in the back of the police van, a weary Bentley explained what Michael had to look forward to. Hawkins would most likely plant some untagged evidence from narcotics in Michael's locker, giving them a pretense to put him in prison. It's not enough to make Michael quietly disappear now. They have to discredit his testimony about the Brotherhood as well. Through a combination of Bentley's words and body language, Michael realizes another danger. Once he's safely behind bars, the cult will make sure he never comes out again. They'll arrange an accident, or fake his suicide, just like they did to the last person who became a witness against the cult, 27 years ago. For now, though, they are on their way to the station house, where Bentley has orders to take Michael down to the showers. Whatever's going to happen, it will happen there. Meanwhile, back in the Brotherhood base, Kate and Murakir have succeeded in shutting down the cult's ritual. Now they are in a race. The cultists will attempt to scatter, taking advantage of at least four different exits from their underground base. Murakir has agreed to use his earth magic to close off these escape routes. While he's doing that, Kate intends to enter the base with the help of her illusion magic. She has three objectives. Assess the strength of the Brotherhood's defenses, rescue Jared Tamlin, and find Morgan and John, who went behind enemy lines two and a half hours ago to divert and disrupt the cult's forces on the ground. When last we saw Morgan and John, they had incapacitated two Brotherhood guards and taken their stunners, 
with the intention of picking off more of them as the cult went looking for their people. What they've been up to since, Kate does not know. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 57 What do you think? John whispered. Morgan leaned up against the doorframe of the little shop, frowning as she peered out the crack in the door. They had been playing cat and mouse with a team of Brotherhood security guards for half an hour straight, hoping to split off another group of two or three that they could incapacitate without much risk. They'd done it successfully twice before in the preceding hour, but the guards seemed to be getting wise to their tactics. No one had come near their hiding spot in the last ten minutes. We may have lost them, Morgan said at last. I don't smell anyone else nearby. John held up the radio they had stolen from one of the previous guards. Should we listen in? They had kept the radio silenced until now, not wanting to risk an incoming transmission giving away their location. Morgan nodded. Do it, but keep it low. Obediently, John turned the volume knob to the first tick mark and switched it on. Immediately a voice came through, followed by another and another. At first, John could only make out the emotions in the voices. Anger, frustration, confusion, fear. The words themselves seemed to slide past his hearing, evading comprehension. He turned to Morgan, who was frowning again. Can you tell what they're saying? She held up a finger and cocked her head, like a dog pinpointing a sound. It's a code, she said at last. Based on old Sweelman, I believe. John made a disgusted noise. Figures. Speaking old Sweelman was one of those skills that elite schools like Chisholm drilled into all their students. Not because fluency in a dead language was important or useful, but because it was a mark of status, something commoners didn't learn how to do. John had never taken a liking to it, and after university, his skill in the language had quickly atrophied. Something serious has happened, Morgan said. I think Kate's plan to disrupt their ritual may have worked. John flashed her a grin. Great. Let's get out of here and wait for the cavalry. If Callie Linder and the others had done their job, a team of friendly police officers should be inbound. But to John's surprise, Morgan was shaking her head. There's something you're forgetting, she said quietly. The abductees. John frowned. What about them? If the cult's plans have been foiled, they'll want to eliminate any witnesses. We're already inside the perimeter. We're good at staying unseen. If we move now, we may arrive in time to save... some of them. She lowered her eyes, looked down at her hands. John felt a pang of sympathy for his old lover. The people you get justice for are already dead, he realized. You want to try to save somebody for once. But he didn't want her to risk her life for a false hope. 
There may not be anyone left to save, he said gently. They've been doing their sacrifices for weeks now. They may not have needed any fresh ones to do the ritual. They still have Dr. Tamlin, Morgan insisted. And Miss Linda's mentor. If they took him for his knowledge, they wouldn't have wasted him on a sacrifice. John, please, I have to do this. I have to try. John looked at her eyes, dark and troubled and brimming with regrets. He took a deep breath, let it out. All right, he said. I'm with you. The police van came to a stop, and the uniformed officers led Michael out into the garage at the Precinct 9 station house. Judging from the scant number of vehicles around them, it appeared that the station was mostly deserted. Detective Bentley followed behind them at a distance of two or three meters, saying nothing, as they went inside and took the stairs down to the first sublevel, where the locker room and showers were located. Sergeant Hawkins waited for them at the entrance to the locker room, a vulpine smile on his fat, furry face. His eyes glinted with pleasure as he looked Michael up and down, his gaze lingering on Michael's cuffed hands. Mr. Pirelli, Hawkins drawled as he leaned back against the doorframe. You've been quite the busy boy tonight, haven't you? He held up his phone, screen outward. The video app was open, and Michael saw himself handcuffed to Schubert's coffee table, explaining the existence of the Brotherhood and how it had infected Metamore's highest levels of government. The video had already been shared more than 50,000 times. I didn't say anything that wasn't true, Michael said, forcing himself to remain calm. Hawkins barked a laugh. (laughs) What a sucker I was. Here I thought you were this naive little busybody who just cared too much. His eyes narrowed and his voice dropped to a growl. Instead, I find out you're helping the Reds, spreading this bullshit to destroy us from the inside. If Bentley hadn't warned him to expect something like this, Michael would have been stunned. He probably would have made some kind of panicked, desperate denial that would have made him look like a liar or a madman. Even prepared for it, the accusation still struck Michael like a knife in the gut. But he kept his calm, and instead of anger or denial, he gave Hawkins a measured, speculative look. I'm curious, Sarge. Did you come up with that idea yourself, or did somebody give it to you? Michael's completely unflustered reaction must have thrown Hawkins off his script, because he hesitated the predator's smile slipping on his face. In that instant of hesitation, Michael pressed his advantage. Because as explanations go, it's not a very good one, he said, his voice still calm and steady. Do you know what happened to me on my first day on the job? You were all too busy to make time for the newbie, so Lieutenant Katane showed me around the station. She introduced me to Dr. Drowling, And the next thing I know, Drowling's using her domination gaze on me. Michael remembered the woman's dark, hypnotic eyes, that sensation of falling under the power of something greater than himself. 
She didn't do much with it, just a little harmless flirting. But when I thought back on it later, it terrified me. I realized that if the first vamp I'd faced hadn't been Morgan, or if she hadn't given me that crash course in what they could do, I could have gotten myself into real trouble really fast. So I went to the magic shop the next day, and I bought an amulet to protect me. He jerked his chin down toward a spot on his sternum. I've worn it every day since. The scanners at the doors of the station house will prove it. See for yourself. Hawkins's eyes narrowed. His eyes flicked down to Michael's chest, then back up to his face, but he made no move to inspect the amulet. Bentley, however, stepped up and unbuttoned the top of Michael's shirt. He pulled out the protection amulet and held it up to the light. Huh, he grunted thoughtfully. I know this design, Sudge. It's a good one. Kid's right. The Reds couldn't have put him under a compulsion with this on. Hawkins's smile reasserted itself, and Michael saw the calculations running fast behind his dark, glittering eyes. Okay, so he's not under compulsion. It just means he's working for him willingly. His eyes lit up with a sudden inspiration. Maybe he always planned on going to the vamps, and that's why he got the amulet. So they'd be forced to cut a deal with him. Michael resisted the urge to sigh. And what makes you think that, Sarge? What have I ever done that would indicate I worked with the syndicate? In answer, Hawkins beckoned them into the locker room. The uniformed guards marched Michael forward to stand in front of his locker. Hawkins interlaced his fingers behind his back, looking smug. At his nod, one of the officers unfastened Michael's handcuffs. Mr. Pirelli, would you be so kind as to open your locker for us? Michael looked down at the locker and smiled thinly. I don't think so, Sarge. Why not? Hawkins asked, feigning innocent curiosity. Something in there you don't want us to see, Corporal? Not as far as I know, Michael said. But if there is something in that locker that shouldn't be there, then we should treat it as a crime scene, right? I wouldn't want to disturb the evidence by opening it now. He cocked his head at Hawkins, as if he were genuinely curious. What makes you so sure there's something in there, Sarge? Again, Hawkins hesitated. However he had been expecting this evening to play out, Michael wasn't giving it to him. The sergeant's dark, beady eyes glared at Michael in utter loathing. Bentley, Hawkins said at last. His voice came out low, even and dangerous. Shut the door. The rhino man frowned, his gaze flicking back and forth between Hawkins and Michael. Michael watched him out of the corner of his eye, while keeping the bulk of his attention on Hawkins. He was also keenly aware of the two uniformed officers behind him, men who had already used violence against him and would have no compunctions about doing it again. For a few tense, quiet seconds, Bentley did not move. Hawkins cut his eyes over to Bentley. When he spoke again, his voice was still low, but it had taken on a ragged, growling edge. 
Detective, shut the fucking door. Bentley let out a long sigh, then turned, walked over to the locker room door, and closed it. He put his back to the door and leaned against it, holding it shut with his own substantial mass. Hawkins gestured. The two uniforms grabbed Michael under each shoulder and slammed him back against the locker. The breath went out of him in a whoosh, and before he could recover, the sergeant was leaning into his face, baring his oversized beaver teeth. They didn't look cute or silly at this distance. They looked like they could gnaw Michael's face off. Now you listen here, you little prick, Hawkins growled, the words coming out fast and full of venom. I don't give a good goddamn if you're working for the Reds or not. You've been nothing but trouble from the day you strutted in here like your feet don't touch the ground. You think you're too good for this place, that you're better than us, smarter than us. Well, I got news for you, golden boy. You pissed off the wrong people. So either you take a plea on what's in that locker and go away quiet, or your landlady's gonna find you swinging from the ceiling fan. His mouth widened in a gruesome approximation of a smile. So what's it gonna be, genius? Michael smiled and shifted his eyes to a spot over Hawkins's shoulder at the far corner of the room. I think that should do it, don't you, sir? Hawkins whipped around in alarm. In the apparently empty corner, the air rippled like a heat distortion in the desert, and then five human-sized figures shimmered into existence. Two were detectives Michael recognized from internal affairs. One of them lowered an Arthana, the ritual dagger of an air mage, as he dismissed the veil that had concealed them. Two were uniformed officers from patrol services, their stun guns leveled at Hawkins and his men. The last was Captain Joe Montgomery, his arms folded, his wickedly sharp wolverine claws flexing against his biceps. Oh, Hawkins, he sighed, shaking his head. We really did promote you to your level of incompetence, didn't we? One of the uniformed officers with Hawkins bolted for the door, evidently expecting Detective Bentley to make way for him. The big rhino man caught the fleeing officer by the neck, did something swift and brutal to one of the man's legs, and dropped him to the floor in a moaning, shuddering heap. Then Bentley drew his service pistol and took careful aim at Hawkins. Michael hoped like hell that his partner could see well enough to shoot the right man. But then again, Hawkins made for a pretty sizable target. Hawkins, for his part, looked deeply scared. His fur fluffed out in alarm everywhere it was exposed, and his head drooped in a submissive posture. Slowly, he raised his hands. Cap, he said at last, his voice shaky and hoarse. Listen, th this isn't what it looks like. I can explain. Montgomery let out a sharp, derisive laugh. Wasn't that supposed to be Corporal Pirelli's line? Do yourself a favor, Hawkins, and shut up until your lawyer gets here. A muscle jumped in the sergeant's jaw, but he said nothing further. The internal affairs cops came up and handcuffed him then, 
along with the second uniformed officer, an athletic Kitchlander man of bland features and average height. The uniform watched Montgomery with a calm, unflinching gaze. You're making a mistake, Captain, the officer said. His voice was unnervingly steady, almost gentle. We had an understanding. You have broken it. Montgomery's lips curled back in a fearsome snarl. If you thought I would stand by and let you murder the good people of this city, you didn't understand me at all. Hawkins looked back and forth between the captain and the uniform, confusion mingling with the fear on his face. Isaac? What does he mean? What's he talking about? But the uniformed man said nothing further. He just kept watching Montgomery with flat, reptilian eyes, the ghost of a smile on his lips, until he and Hawkins were led away by internal affairs. The two patrol services officers picked up Hawkins's second man between them and carried him out after them. Bentley came up to Michael and released his handcuffs. Montgomery, the only other person left in the room, approached them both, but his eyes were focused on Bentley. Did you get everything? Bentley pulled a phone out of his jacket pocket. Michael saw the fluctuating waveforms of a voice recording tracing their way across the screen. Bentley stopped the recording and examined it, holding the phone a few centimeters from one eye. Looks like it. He handed the phone to Montgomery. Hope you nail him to the wall for this. The captain accepted the phone with a nod. If this plan works, we just might. Thank you for your help, Horace. Bentley just shrugged his massive shoulders. I ain't no rat. Have you heard anything from D.A. Schubert, sir? Michael asked. The captain frowned. No, he must have run into trouble getting out of the tower. But everyone he called for is at the rendezvous point. Now we just need to know where we're going. I can give you that, Michael said. Montgomery gave him a nod and a fierce grin. Good. Let's go finish this. And that's the end of Chapter 57. Come back next time, when Kate pulls out all her illusionist talents and enters the Brotherhood's secret base. Tony Morrison said, We die. That may be the meaning of life. But we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. Ms. Morrison passed away on the 5th of this month, at the age of 88. She was the author of 11 novels, 2 plays, 2 collections of short stories, 5 children's books, and countless essays. She won far too many awards for me to list here, including the Nobel Prize for Literature, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. By any measure, her life was an extraordinary one. Thank you, Ms. Morrison, for doing language in such an inspiring way. As for me, I've hopefully got a lot more years of doing language ahead of me. So let's see how I'm doing this week. Here's your weekly writing report.
I wrote 3,410 words this week, over the course of 5.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 650 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 322 days without breaking my chain. I did a little better this week at making time for writing, though there were still a few days when it ended up being the very last thing before bed. I made some more progress on All the World of Fire, which is now deep into Chapter 9 and over 24,000 words. I also wrote a little over a thousand words on a short story about Callie, which I'm tentatively calling No Exit. It takes place after the events of The Lost and the Least, and it was inspired by one of Dave Robison's writing prompt images on Facebook. I'll post it in the Patreon feed when it's finished, though I don't recommend reading it until you've finished The Lost and the Least. Speaking of Patreon, we have a returning patron this week. Please welcome back Judy. Judy has rejoined the Patreon campaign at the $15 a month level, which includes complimentary copies of every ebook I release. Patrons at this level also get my new ebooks before anyone else. So if you can't wait to get your hands on my next project, this is the level for you. If you're looking for something a little more affordable, you can join the early access tier. For $3 a month, you get sneak peeks, bonus sketches, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, all of my patrons get the Behind the Episode podcast, and exclusive illustrations from artists like Ben Clifford and Carol Foote. As a matter of fact, Carol has just released her second illustration for a wizard family solstice. This one depicts John Tunstall's first encounter with the mysterious Esme Freebairn. You can check out a sample of it at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Then head over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, take a look at the donation tiers, and choose the one that's right for you. Roughly 91% of what you donate goes directly to me, so it's the most effective way to support my work. Thanks so much to everyone who donates. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.